This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. Today on the podcast, we're featuring a conversation between Sally Ann Parham and Paul Gyanaselvam. Sally is a sociologist who has conducted research about the Indian community in Malaysia, and she is serving as the guest host for this episode. Paul Gyanaselvam is an Ipo-born writer and poet whose work often focuses on the experiences, issues, and identity conflicts of those in the Indian diaspora. His latest collection, The Elephant Trophy and Other Stories, was published by Penguin Random House Southeast Asia in 2021. Sally recently reviewed the collection for the IIAS book reviews platform, which led her to contact Paul himself, and Paul graciously agreed to an interview for this podcast. In addition to his writing, Paul lectures at University Technology Mara, Perak campus in Malaysia. As you'll hear, his fiction is deeply concerned with social scientific questions about marginalization, belonging, social hierarchy, exclusion, and identity, all of which are explored in the following conversation as well. Without further ado, here are Sally Ann Parham and Paul Gyanaselvam. Hi, everybody. I'm Sally. I'm My name is Sally, and um, I'm a lecturer here in Sunway. And I'm so, so privileged to be able to interview uh, this great writer. His name is Paul, and I'm going to just go straight in into the interview. And this is it. So, Paul, if you are there, just say hello to me. Hello, Sally. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on. And um, as the introduction would have gone earlier, people would know that uh, you're a writer. You've been writing for a while. So my first question to you would be, um, you started writing since 2006. So it's coming 20 years. It's almost like 20 years of writing. Would you like to share your own motivations, like how, how you started on this journey of writing? Okay, um, I never thought that I would write. But um, in 2006, I was actually working at Inti College Malaysia. And we had a good number of colleagues who were interested in literature. And I think that was the year, probably 2002, if I'm not mistaken, when Arundhati Roy won the Man Booker Prize for God of Small Things. And of course, it made all heads turn. And of course, it made my head and neck turn. And so what happened is, uh, was we had a group of people who were very interested in literature and who were very vocal. And uh, we some sort organized ourselves into an informal um, literary critic or probably just a discussion group, yeah? It just happens that I sat in a faculty office, in a faculty room with a round table. That's the only room that had a round table. And everybody used to come to our room to use the round table. And eventually over time, we had a coffee machine and we, had, we, we, provide, we started providing uh, coffee powder, milk, sugar and all that. So everybody usually gyrated to our rooms. 
in the evenings, you know, for tea and coffee. And that's how we usually, we started off with this uh, discussion group and we just talk about books and, um, I mean, among other things. And it so happened that uh, we started talking about Arundhati Roy and we started talking about V.S. Nightfall and, of course, um, the usual office gossips and uh, <laughs> they did. And, and apparently just one clip turned to me one day and said, Paul, you can actually relate events so well. You sound like V.S. Nightfall. Okay, I did not <laughs> believe that. I did not buy that. Because... I think when I and I when I talked about events, I think uh, I was able to dab a lot of sarcasm with it. Nepal did that very well and professionally. But the thing is, we all were very enthusiastic about reading. And again, there was Arundhati Roy coming into the picture, yes, Nepal. And the next person to come into the picture was uh, K.S. Manian. And of course, as an undergraduate, um, that was the first uh, Indian genre literature that I was reading and it kind of like sparked up uh, probably the ancestral genes in me. And I was so attracted to the story about a group about my people coming from India, people who spoke a common language and the ideas about crossing seas and braving weather changes. Mm -hmm. Definitely life in the estates, embracing the storms and whatnot, yeah? So it became a very, very identity-discovering group. And uh, that actually sparked a lot of interest in me. And of course, one day, this colleague has to like turn around to me and tell me, hey, you speak so well, you explain events so well, why don't you write? And um, I think that was a little seed that was planted in me. And I did not quite write until 2006. Uh, 2006 is when I first started publishing. I started out writing letters to editors, to the newspaper, to the star, reflecting about my teacher experiences. And then I slowly went into fiction. There was a heart and soul section in the star paper as well. When I started talking about daily events that are very motivational, inspiring, and things like that. And um, the first short story that I, that I wrote was actually a horror flick. <laughs> and, and, it was, uh, and it got published in 2006. And uh, I think having established that particular identity as a writer, so I began to explore the nuances into creative writing and all that. Um, so I've never turned back since, I suppose. And uh, I enjoyed telling stories. I enjoyed uh, talking about events. And what's more is putting an, a dab of identity into all these stories, particularly because I'm attracted to the idea of diaspora, of movements, experiences. And I think as a person in diaspora, I have a story to tell. And I think my story is important. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. Just for the sake of the international audience that we may have, maybe I just want to say that uh, K.S. Maniam is a Malaysian writer. He's an Indian who has uh, written about the uh, Indian diaspora in Malaysia. That means those who come from India and who have landed in Malaysia and live in Malaysia. And this sense of identity that's here and yet not here. 
So for those of us who uh, have read Maniam, and in fact, I'm very privileged, Paul, because I was an undergraduate when um, KS Maniam used to be a lecturer at mm -hmm. University Player. So it's, it, I, wow. I've like, yeah, I've had the privilege to like, literally like sit at his feet, you know, so to speak. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so it's just for the sake of the audience. So KS Maniam is a Malaysian writer who has written about Indianness and, and the search of identity, so to speak, about um, our people, yeah, the Indians who have come um, from the mainland and who now live in Malaysia. So that's something that um, I really enjoyed when you talked about how that was part of your motivation, that Maniam, together with international writers like Roy and Naipaul, that Maniam also was part of that, that group of, you know, that, uh, the significant others who have uh, shaped your own a desire to write. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. And probably at this day, yes. At this juncture, I just want to mention um the title of the book that has changed me so much, which is uh, In a Far Country by KS Maya. Where he talks about uh, his grandmother's um, migration in Bidong Kada and migration into the cities. And uh, he talks about pursuing the spirit of the land. Yes, um, yes. That that was one of the texts that we did as an undergraduate. So yeah, okay. it's yeah, such fond memories. Thank you, thank you for <laughs> mentioning that. So coming to the next question, like um, mm -hmm. again, just to let the audience know that in Malaysia, the Indian population is currently standing at probably only seven percent. So as a minority group, we are only about seven percent. So that's about just about 2 million plus from the total population. And um, that's where we are at now. So, Paul, maybe you can just share with us, like, um, what's the generalized, you know, socio-eco-political uh, milieu of the country and how this particular population, the Indian community, and how they they face life with, with, this, with this context that surrounds them. Maybe you could share that as well. Okay, all right. I think there are many facades to this uh, migration of Indians to Malaysia. Definitely, we are talking about the pre-colonial times and definitely the colonial times and definitely the post-colonial times. Um, we are talking, when we talk about the pre-colonial times, Indians have been visiting Malaysia from probably the 11th century with the establishment of the Chola kingdoms in South India. Uh, where Rajendra Cholan and Sailindra Cholan, they have been colonializing Southeast Asian countries for centuries, yeah? And uh, Indians have particularly been using, together with the Arab merchants, Indians have been particularly using the Straits of Malacca for trade. And unlike many other traders, like the Chinese and the Arab traders, the Indian traders had actually set up a port in Kedah. Which is, uh, and eventually in Kedah, um, this particular place called Sungai Merbok uh, boasts of an Indian settlement, all right, that dates back to the 14th and 15th century. So Indians have been in the then Malaya, or probably even before Malaya got its name, um, in the 11th and 12th century. And we go back to the times of Angkor Wat and Borobudur and whatnot. And then, centuries later, we talk about uh, the colonial times. 
in the 19th century, probably as early as 1912 and 1913, where South Indians, especially those uh, from the Tamil community, uh, were brought in from failing agricultural uh, sectors as I identified labors into Malaya to basically help the British to realize their social economical progress in the rubber plantations, you see. So the British wanted to make money. They wanted, they needed a place to plant rubber. So they were colonializing many parts of the world where in the, in the tropical countries. And they needed labor. So they brought in Indians and particularly Indians from South India, Tamils. And we saw the second wave of Indians basically getting on ships like the Chidambaram, like the MS Rajula, and they were basically landing in Anson Fort, the low Intan, Anson Bay. So that's how my grandfather landed in Malaysia, probably uh, before the Japanese occupation. So that's the second wave. And then we also talk about the post-colonial times when Malaysia, basically, um, we, were, we, were, we were actually uh, invaded by the Japanese, and then Malaysia fighting the communists, and then we achieved our independence in 1957. And after 1957, we were given a choice of whether we want to stay or leave. And of course, such social schemata were presented. So there was actually a choice. Those who stayed back would not actually uh, be recognized as natives or bumiputras. Bumiputras in Sanskrit simply translated as sons of the soil. So the Chinese migrants and the Indian migrants were offered citizenship, but they were not given Bumiputra status. The natives, Malays, were given Bumiputra statuses, and this accorded them special privileges um, that they could afford as Bumiputra sons of the soil. And over the years, the quest for identity has remained uh, a question for many of these migrants. Even though I am a third generation being born in Malaysia, I am not a Bumiputra. I'm not concerned sons of the soil. I am not native. So, so, so there's always this question of being within a circle and being outside a circle. All right. So where do I put myself? Where do I put my legs as a, as a citizen? And as migrants, as we are not immigrants. Well, we are probably, we are actually more migrants in a way because we were born here. And this actually shaped the social eco-political milieu of the Malaysians, you see. So definitely um, the concept of uh, the native-born son or the Bumiputra concept and privileged and non-privileged. So we are definitely talking about two classes of people, right? So our lives are pretty much shaped by this concept and what is accorded and what is not accorded to us. Over the years, we've got success stories. The richest man in Malaysia, Tan Sri Ananda Krishnan, is an Indian, and of an Indian migrant. And definitely, um, we've got the professional Indians who also migrated to Malaysia over uh, the millennium. And uh, definitely, um, we've got other groups of Indians coming to Malaysia, like the Gujaratis, the Telugus, and the Malayalis, 
who also made up a bulk of people who did not work in the estates, in the rubber plantations, but formed uh, part of the professional manpower that Malaysia needed. And many Indians were also traders, you see. So, so not all Indians who migrated in Malaysia ended up in the estates, in SIH labors. There were also many traders who set up businesses and so on. However, the struggle is real. Um, and uh, definitely at the point where I was starting to write, that was in 2008, I think there was a lot of flux where at some point of time, industries, electronical industries, processing industries were taking over plantations. And in the 19, late 1980s, in the early 1990s, rubber had lost its value. Tin ore has lost its value. And Malaysia was actually moving on into uh, a fully industrialized country. And by that time, you were actually seeing a scenario where the estates were failing. All right, those Indians who actually had settled in the urban areas were lucky. They had access to education, they had access to health, they had access to, to, to technology, they had access to so many things. And they were able to compete with the other races and they were able to sustain themselves economically. However, we are talking about far-thrown plantations. Some of these estates are definitely cut off from basic amenities, such as electricity, water supply, and they do not have a fair share in the development of the outside world. And life in the estates are very laid back, and some of these identity laborers, laborers for generations did not capitalize on education because adults, educational services were not provided in the estate. Infrastructure were bad. Children did not go to school. And succumbed to alcohol, women had ailments, and, and, and there was this certain bleakness that over generations had engulfed estate dwellers, you see. So when we talk about the transition of agriculture to industry, so I suppose there was this group of Indians who were caught for unaware, they were caught helpless. And when they were forced out of the estates and they were coming into the urban areas without education, and with no education, they are not given jobs. With no education, employment is scarce. So they started taking up very, very menial jobs. And they also brought their own traumas of being cut off from whatever they've known. And of course, by, by the 1990s, the late 1990s, Crime among Indi the Indian community, even though we are the smallest population in Malaysia, the crime uh, rates among Indians were very high. Domestic violence among Indians were very high. Here, school dropout rate among Indian children were very high. Um, definitely, uh, when we are talking about organized crimes, where, where, where you basically absorb people into running criminal activities in very high. We're talking about town planning and we're definitely we are talking about illegal squatters in certain pockets of Kuala Lumpur who could not afford housing, drug addiction, alcohol consumption, and the Indians, the Indian statistics were bursting at its seams 
for this kind of negativity and negative portrayal that actually becoming a social political problem and it permeated into public disturbances, public nuisance, and it, it came to a point where definitely in 1998, there was an incident in Subang Jaya where I was working. Uh, there was a racial riot and definitely um, between uh, the Indians and the Malays, I'm not so sure if I can say this, <laughs> and I was quite caught right in the middle of it because that time I started working in Inti College, Subang Jaya. How close we are to Kampung Gandhi and Kampung Medan. And that was actually my first hand experience with a racial riot. And uh, definitely uh, the, the emergency, a state of emergency. I've read about May 1969, but I wasn't born at that time, uh, where part, pockets of cities were cordoned off and there were violence that we heard, you know, hearsay violence. We were not directly uh, affected. But um, it was scary enough. And I definitely, and of course, there were a lot of uh, statistics that were coming up and there were a lot of exposure. So that was an eye-opener. And it was definitely an eye-opener for me because after generations of uh, being uh, the second generation, third generation, fourth generation of Indians in Malaysia, and we are talking about 11th century, migrations. So I find that the Indians, especially the Tamil people, my people, lacked a voice and they got trapped in this social, economic, political, uh, how would I say, uh, the situation, but the, the context, yeah. And I definitely felt that I had to speak for them. I had to write for them. And um, the thing is, you cannot separate identity from these issues. You cannot separate the Indian, the Tamil Indian, from the social, the bigger social milieu. You cannot separate him from the bigger economical pie. You cannot separate him from the political agendas, from the political policies that, that have shaped this group of people to what they are, and believe it or not, this was the 20th century, the age of the internet. So getting caught in that riot actually opened up my idea. And I remembered a very specific, significant event that took place in 1998. That was the year that I was graduating from University Kebangsaan, Malaysia. And my lecturer, Professor Farida Merican, so, Professor Dr. Farida Merican actually showed me, okay, I am a very young undergraduate. I'm, always, I'm about to graduate in 1998. That was my last semester. And this is the dean of my faculty here. So, she calls me in and she shows me a particular issue of Time magazine in 1998. And I actually see this Indian man, a, a, a very fat, a plump Indian man holding two kerosene tins filled with something, yeah? And he's very poorly dressed and all that. And she was showing me this picture and, and she was telling me, Paul, you have so much of potential. You must tell this story one day. And, you know, being an undergraduate, I really didn't know what she meant, what it was. And that was later on. Um, 
when I had this group and we were talking about things and it was in 1998 and it was in 2002, 2004, when I actually started these conversations and exploring these identity issues with my colleagues, I understood what all this meant. And that definitely uh, put me on the jumping board to become the writer that I am today. Wow. I think I should give credit to my to, to Professor Dr. Farida American. I mean, I've met a lot. I'm very lucky to met, I've met a lot of people who planted these little, little seeds in me to talk about the things that I talk about in my stories. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so yeah. much. I personally was just wowed by the way that you brought in the historical context. I mean, you're a writer. I'm not saying that you you shouldn't know these things, but really this is such a deep sociological slant into, you know, the people who have come here and, you know, right up to the post-colonial time, which is like now. And, you know, you have just panned that entire history for, you know, for the listeners. And I think that it's really wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And I personally am very excited because... I, I think the way that you have brought in that migrant thing, that diaspora migrant lives into the search for identity, you know, with all these things that they have gone through, with all this, you know, this this history, this, uh, this socioeconomic situation, and then the political element coming in, and then this the status, you know, that's given to them of not being sons of the soil. And it's like, I've just gone through like an oral history lesson of my <laughs> own people as well. And yeah, I, I, I find that so amazing. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for that. And if I could just from, from this, from what you are sharing, if I could just ask you, if I could just relate back to KS Manim since we, mm -hmm. we started off by talking about him, but I don't mind being honest here because, I mean, the good man, he's uh, gone to a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, he's passed on. But, you know, like when I studied him as an undergraduate, yes, my name is an undergraduate, it was very difficult because he, he spoke in a language where you had to understand the nuances. Yes, you know, and being definitely. young, and being young in my, you know, like uh, late teens and early 20s, I, we just couldn't understand Sally, I did this text for post-colonial literature in uh, 1997, and I never got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was he was so difficult to understand. It was so complex because, like, we didn't know when he was literal, and then when he suddenly went into a figurative language, and we found it so difficult. But coming to you, Paul, you know, like. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, of course, I'm much older now. I'm like 30 years more than an undergraduate. But your work, I can, I can really put a handle to it. Your work, I can really see the depth of what the people have gone through. Of course, like I said, yes, I'm much older and I've read. And, and of course, you know, um, it's much easier to understand. But the way that you have talked about the same issues, you know, the diasporic dilemma and the quest for identity and the way that you have brought it in makes it a lot more um, understandable, palatable, you know, I can, I can really grasp that. So in the light of that, uh, how would you respond when people compare you with KS Maniam and make you feel that, yes, you are a writer as good as that? How does that make you feel? 
Sally, that, that was a hyperbole. <laughs> no, it's not. Not hyperbole. Bobby. Real question. <laughs> Thank you so much. But um, I'm very humbled by that statement. And it is only after 20, um, sorry, 20 years, almost 20 years of writing, um, I'm getting this label. Oh, you do talk about, you do write stories and you do sound like Yes Maniam. Um, I think Yes Maniam has been my guru and he has been my, the light that shone upon me, the light of realization and definitely, um, but I definitely think I don't write like K.S. Maniam, but probably I carry that burden like K.S. Maniam. And uh, probably I love to put his perspectives. I carry his perspectives. Um, in, the, in 1999, there was this paper that was published. I can't remember. These were my ex-university lecturers who wrote the paper. It's called Recoiling from... Uh, future, I can't rem remember it, where... Who were the writers for? Who were the writers? Malaysians, fellow Malaysians. Malaysians, fellow Malaysians. They were, they were UKM lecturers. There were two of them, and I, and I just can't... And I've just forgotten it. Um, they were talking about the concept, or even, I think, uh, K.S. Maniam were actually discussing the concept of the circle. All right? So, uh, he looks at the social context as a circle. Why are you not inside the circle? Or are you inside the circle? Or are you observing from outside the circle? I think, I think that definitely affected me a lot. And uh, a lot of my, my departure point of writing comes from K.S. Maniam's idea of the circle. I don't know whether it is a literary theory that he was discussing, but I think this is a concept that he actually drew a framework about the society that he was talking about, writing about. Kies Manim is very, very concerned about the concept of belonging. And um, um, I don't know, at this point of time, I don't know whether I want to belong or I am just observing the concept of belonging and what are the push factors and what are the plus factors there, pulling factors there. And definitely, K.S. Maniam loves to talk about his community, the Tamil community. Um, there is a very rich portrayal of his grandmother. He was brought up by his grandmother. Um, and he was born in an estate in Bidong, Kedah. And in Bidong, it was so far removed that tigers used to remove, uh, uh, tigers used to roam these parts of the estates, yeah? Uh, even my great-grandmother, when they were actually moved from one place to the other by the plantation owners, yeah, and they were actually placed in Greek at one point of time. My, my grandmother remembers a point of time where after a certain time uh, at night, they are not allowed to come out. And when they come out in the mornings, they could actually spot tiger first at the uh, quarters where they lived. And there are cases where people are carried off by tigers. And... Uh, Definitely. Uh, my own grandmother, great-grandmother has passed on those stories to my grandmother and my mom remembers her mother uh, being uh, a rubber tapper in one of those estates in Kuala Kangsa. And um, the stories are all too similar. People getting attacked by wild boars, people dying of malaria, people dying of childbirth, people dying of anemia. 
and uh, people dying of neglect, people dying of intellectual dryness. People, people just died of neglect. And is there a compensation for these people who tapped rubber and who made the country prosperous at one point of time? And um, I think these are the exact questions that KS Mariam is asking. So what is the price? Sometimes I remember very playfully asking my grandfather one day, Tata, why did you come to Malaysia? Why did you take a boat to Malaysia? Why didn't you go to Los Angeles? I don't know. I think I watched a Hollywood movie and I'm very interested in Los Angeles. I say, why didn't you go to America? You know, it's really fun to be in America. Or why didn't you go to New Zealand? It's cooler there. And my grandfather was, was just laughing. And he said, wherever you are, that's where the sky protects you. The sky gives you light. The sky gives you rain. So wherever you step, your, you put your foot on, that's where home is. Okay, all these concepts I did not understand at that time. And probably, uh, in a way, KS Maniam conceptualized them for me. And I'm able to put that down on words, in words. So, so whatever the KS Maniam did for me, I am reflecting that probably I've taken it to the next level as a writer. And yes, I probably believe so now that when people say that there are these traces of KS Maniam in me, I'm learning to accept that. <laughs> and mm. it gives me great pride to actually uh, to be identified with someone I adored and have a lot of respects for and who has shaped my thoughts. Oh, that's lovely. Actually, I'm quite emotional now um, because the way that you tied it in, you know, the way that Mania wrote and the way that you are writing now and to see the process, you know, being continued at the at a more tangible level, Paul. Thank you so much. And, that, and when that, I was young, my grandparents used to tell us how they travelled on the big ship Rajula to Malaysia. And they talked about crossing the seven seas. You know, there was the dark sea, there was the deep blue sea, there was the milky ocean. And there were so many different, different seas. And they used to talk about the ship stopping at the port of Rangoon, the ship stopping here, stopping there, people vomiting in the sheep and, and things like that. I think only years later, when I held in a far country, gives my name in my head, I could actually conceptualize, imagine, or move to a next level of imagine that was evoking this, 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 this emotional ties to those great epics that were told. And I was able to, to actually point a finger and touch my ancestors, their stories, their dreams, their memories. And, and that psyche was so true to me. So, so that's exactly what Kesmanian did for me. I'm grateful for that. Wow. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And imagine you're carrying that in your heart. I, like, I love the way that you talked about how you are actually carrying the weight of his work, you know, in that sense, you know, what he meant and what he wanted to write about and you were able to, to struggle with it and you have been able to grasp it and you are bringing it into, you know, at this level. So I want to connect that to what you had um, actually said in your previous book, actually, Lata's uh, Christmas and Other Stories. And, and in the preface, you had said that 
uh, people's lives are filled with um, stories and it is through stories that we learn about ourselves and others and we tell stories to be heard, to be loved, to be accepted and to belong in the world. It is stories for ages unknown that keep the human race glued together. I write stories because they must be told. You know, I was very fascinated with that preface and I wanted to connect that with, with the genre that you have chosen to express uh, these stories, you know, through the short story genre. You know? So you, you haven't chosen the poem, you haven't chosen the novel, um, you haven't chosen the essay, but you have chosen the short story, you know, the fictitious short story. So would you like to talk a little bit about that? So in terms of a framework of choosing the short story genre in order to speak for a group of people who are yours or to write for them, why did you choose the short story? I began by writing a short story, like what I told you. It was a horror flick. And uh, I continued with the short story format for some time, yeah? In 2009, I signed up for a creative writing, a comprehensive diploma in creative writing at the Writers' Bureau in UK. And I started exploring other genres of fiction writing. I did go into, um, I, I, I have actually published poems, poetry, that talked about identity and not. And uh, I did actually uh, dabble in novel writing, but I think it ended up in a very disastrous manner. <laughs> okay. Um, what happened was, it was a good time from 2019 until 2011. 2011, 2012, that's the time when I finished the comprehensive diploma. But the comprehensive diploma gave me a perspective on choosing the right genre for myself. Having experimented with all these formats, I felt that the short story worked well with me. I could focus the plot of the stories. I could sharpen the theme of the story. And my characters are at hand. Um, the characters are definitely a part of me, and I am definitely a part of those characters. And um, I really enjoy the common psyche of humanness, I believe that everywhere around the world, everybody goes through the same thing at some particular point of time. Everybody has felt suppressed. Everybody has felt discriminated. Everybody had been victorious. Have Everybody had been happy. Everybody had been sad. I really like this idea of that human connectedness or the human psyche. Yeah? So when we talk about post-colonial effects, so... Definitely, um, we, uh, things like alienation, things like discrimination, things like masculinity uh, concepts, things like colour, things like uh, gender, all these basically are part of the grander effects of post-colonialism because migration took place at a greater scale during uh, the colonial times. And um, definitely, when I'm looking at my people, when I'm looking at definitely people who are not at my level, those who, okay, I came up in a difficult way. My dad was the only one who was working. He was an office boy. And he had like five mums to feed. There were five of us at home. Mum was not working. At that time, women did not go to work. And uh, it was a great struggle. But... 
Jack had one thing in mind. He made sure that we went to school, whether we were sick or not. There was just no excuse he would accept. We, we went to school. We sat for the exams. We studied hard. Dad made sure that he, 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 does, he didn't buy us play, uh, playstations or video games. Um, there was a lot of things that we did not get that the other kids got. We were not privileged at all. But we struggled. And that's what I suppose this migration taught us. You have to struggle to survive. And uh, definitely this epitome of theme affected so many Indians of my generation. If you don't work hard, you're just going to vanish. You're just going to end up as an alcoholic. You're just going to end up unemployed. You're just going to end up like the Indians in the estates. You're going to end up like this, like that, a third class. You're going to end up getting discriminated. You're going to end up uh, sidelined by the system. You have to fight to get into the system. So how do I pack this? I could not pack this in a novel, in a very long writing because um, I have a problem with attention. <laughs> so what happens is I could segmentize these themes and I could experiment them, I could explore them, take it up to the next level and I could actually give a voice to these people whom I observe and probably who, whose struggles I understand. Um, I know where they come from. All right. Um, so it is as simple as that. So the short story format has fascinated me, has allowed me to go to greater depths and to be able to explore, experiment, and at the same time focus into the depths of the issues that we are facing. Um, so that is why I love this short story format. And, and definitely, of course, there are economical reasons, Sally. Short stories are easier to be published because they are short. Short stories do not require so many pages for print. <laughs> and definitely, there are more avenues. There's more market to publish short stories. And they actually, I think, carry uh, the message faster. Um, and I've actually stayed with this format for so long even when I think of novels, I can't, I can't really fathom going into that. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing. Actually, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm not a writer, though I would love to be one. Um, but I should never say die. I think your, your life story has been an inspiration that, you know, I think anyone who has a heart for or a passion for a group of people, I think, can actually translate that into words. I mean, that's, that's such a motivation you know for those of us who are you know interested but yeah we, we just don't have the skill that you do but yeah I was I was I mean I had just read up and it's it just so happened it's coincidental that the short story is actually the preferred genre for writers in Malaysia so you know so like I think you've kind of like just fit into the niche perfectly yeah thanks for sharing how the conventions of uh, the short story are so apt and suitable for the kind of stories that you want to tell. Mm -hmm. I'm just very curious. I hope you don't mind me bringing in my own um, kind of like a kind of a personal uh, curiosity kind of thing. I love the way I love the way that you dealt with the theme of death actually in um, in your book. You know, the elephant trophy. Because like in some cases, um, 
like the elephant trophy story itself because uh, grandma was old and she was on the verge of passing on it 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 made sense you know death made sense in that story or or the story that talked about uh, the truth about more you know and the moment he got his motorbike and you know what his parents kind of forecasted said would happen it happened and you know so i i get that but i i love the way that you brought in the theme of death in stories that you didn't expect uh, death to be the outcome or death to to kind of like uh, linger or to lurk, you know, in, in, in the pages until it actually happened. Like in um, Arison's case, you know, the, the story about the ride, you know. So I, I, I was wondering whether if I could just um, use this time to kind of like probe just a little bit from a layman's terms. Like, uh, did you... Did you see yourself in Arison, number one? Um, and number two, like, um, what made you kind of like go into the part where, you know, such a, a life that's got so much of potential, he was doing well in his studies and all that, but he just got swallowed up in death. Like, if you could, if you could just like talk a little bit about that, if that's okay. Hmm. I remember this argument that I had with my supervisor. Um, when I was doing my first degree, and she had the same question like you, Sally. And she said, you are so young, and why are you dabbling with death for your project, for your final year project? And I remember telling her this, it is through death that you give birth to new life. So to me, death is not a full stop. Death actually means new life to me. Um, so metaphorically speaking, death actually sprouts new life. And, and I, I romanticize this idea of death by killing by killing off my characters in the end. But I'm not sure if I was actually doing it purpose, purposely. Um, okay, I think in Arison's case, uh, the ride, yeah, I just, I probably wanted to add a weightage to the situation. Um, the weightage of the situation. So we here we are talking about a young boy, and we are talking about class struggles. Yeah, and uh, it is very important for this boy who came up from a very poor background, and he's trying to keep up with his rich classmates, right? And uh, I think this is something that a lot of us go through in school. Probably something that I have experienced myself, but I did not go to the extent of <laughs> Arison. Definitely, I, I, I probably want to talk about the weight, the whole burden that actually weighs down underprivileged children economically. I mean, children who are economically underprivileged. And we are talking about, in school, we meet people of so many classes, children of so many classes. All right? So, so it's a struggle, you see. And um, I see that Arson is just giving up in his struggle. There's a lot of sympathy that goes out to this character in that story. And why does he... Okay, I, I, I don't think he dies in the end. It is just that malfunctioning lift closes up on him. The elevator closes up on him. For me, I think it is just a symbol of, of the darkness that has engulfed the psyche of this child, of being so tired, being labelled as poor, being labelled uh, not belonging, um, who probably has a good education but don't have a good social class, 
a young boy who doesn't understand that it takes time to actually come up, to climb up the ladder as in, in a social class. We are talking about obsessive, obsession as well. Um, so this is actually a very um, make-believe, I wouldn't say a make-believe kind of a story, it's a noir kind of a story where darkness and expectations to real-life fantasy playing into the minds of a young boy. All right? And he just goes into the malfunctioning elevator and cocoons himself there because he feels that there is just no point in... Because he's just helpless. He can't beat the system mm. in that sense. And he is a prisoner of his own circumstances, you see? All right. And uh, I'm actually reflecting that on a community, on, on the Indian community as well. Sometimes you become victims of your own circumstances, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for giving me that hope that Arison didn't. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I'm that was Arison. And definitely um, the grandmother's death, the titular story, The Elephant Trophy. That is just my ode to all those people who have passed on in this great process of migration and who has left us with memories. So the elephant trophy is all memories because elephants have a gift of memory because they've got a part of that brain that stores more memory than other animals. And um, definitely uh, the truth about Mo. Uh, the boy who's spiraling into violence because he got his first motorbike. Uh, that definitely uh, is a story that was inspired about custodian custody deaths in 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 the, in the police lockups in Malaysia. We've got a number of them coming out in the newspapers, hitting the headlines, which has been a whole great big uh, topic of discussion. And uh, so, so definitely, I'm just looking at. This whole story about, from a mother's perspective, the whole idea of a mother, a, a baby suckling milk from its mother, and when it grows up, the environment shapes it into a criminal, and all that milk is spilled as wasted blood. It's a very symbolic kind of imagery that I have in mind. And uh, one day, uh, I, I, when I go to school, I pass by the Ipoh High Court. And uh, from the Magistrates Court to the Ipoh High Court, you've got to cross the busy main road. And uh, I've actually seen a number of prisoners in, in handcuffs who are escorted by the police or the prison guards from the Magistrate Court to the High Court. And there was this scene I saw. There was a, this group of family. There were two Indian men, all bearded. They were young. And there was this small, framed old mother, old lady, wore a sarong and a blouse, and she had this tundu, a tower uh, shrouded around her shoulders. And when the policemen were actually escorting the two men, all right, and this old lady, I think, I think, one of their mothers, she definitely was one of the mothers of those men because she held on to the elbow of one of those men who were being escorted in prison uniform. And there was the other lady, there was a lady carrying a baby, there were other men, there were other children, all of them following 
this police escort to the high court. I think it's a wretched scene that I have never, ever forgotten. The mother never, never let go of that man's elbow. She just held on to it. I think such stories must be told. What was a mother feeling? What would all mothers of Indian criminals in Malaysia feel? Whose fault is it? Right? So whose fault is it? And how did this whole thing happen or come to what it is as seen now? All right, but of course, a lot of things for the Indian community has improved by leaps and bounds, definitely. Um, there's a lot of intellectual awareness. There's a lot of economical awareness and people have really come up and crime rates have gone down and things like that. But at that one point of time, so these are the events that have evoked that, 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 that questionable identity in me. In seeing them, I question who I am, what I am. Where is this direction of diaspora that I'm heading? So what is there for me at the end of the road? So when I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking about all these people. And definitely we are all affected by our environment, by so many social factors, economical factors, political factors. And definitely this is definitely what, it, what I am writing about. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for that. Would you be able to share your future plans with us? Are you going to continue writing? Is there another book on the way? And, you know, those kind of questions, yeah, whether you could share with us. I'm a bit trigger-friendly when it comes to writing. Sometimes I get ideas from call to submission. Sometimes I just get these weird ideas floating in my mind. Sometimes ideas come because of my own experiences. Uh, my own observations, yeah, and uh, things like that. So um, I start on projects and I feel that I think the only project that I have been able to focus on was my PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> I like what I told you earlier, I can never write a novel because I cannot keep up with a certain theme in mind, you see? That intensity of it, yeah. yeah. So, but what happens was, I'm better off with a collection of short stories, but deep down in me, I know and I'm fixated that I know that I'm going to be, my writings are going to be based on a community theme. And uh, definitely, I will talk about the Tamil community in Malaysia, the Indian community at large, and Malaysians as large. And I very much like to dabble my stories with the idiosyncrasies of living in a multiracial society, negotiating boundaries, transitions, and the idiosyncrasies that come in. Yeah? And um, I think I will go along the way. But somehow, somewhere along the way, I'm very much attracted to masculinity concept where I want to write or where I want to advocate for the voice of masculinity as opposed to patriarchy. Actually, this was actually a proposal that I was uh, experimenting for my PhD. Uh, eventually, it did, not, it did not get through and uh, I ended up with a PhD in English education. But uh, I definitely want, okay, if you look at my other stories, I've really weighed on 
very feminist voices, and in the first book especially. Uh, but then it's a mixture. But I do intend now to basically focus on masculine voices. Because we are talking about the new millennium, and we are talking about men who are also discriminated, men who are also sidelined, men who are also not privileged uh, in a very patriarchal society. All right? And that's me. I am talking about myself. I am talking about KS Manian, even though KS Manian can be quite patriarchal <laughs> in some ways. But in a patriarchal system, we are all the lesser voices. We are all the lesser men. And um, um, I don't know. I'm also experimenting with migrant voices from India. And I'm also looking at people at the peripherals of gender boundaries. All right. Uh, in fact, I've written these before, but uh, they were not written in a big way. But I would love to go into, uh, again, writing about the voices of masculine Indian men compared to patriarchal Indian men. Um, again, I'm not focused on an anthology of masculine voices, but probably in the next few years, I will be writing short stories uh, pertaining to masculine voices. And maybe when I collect them and put them into an anthology, a collection, that would probably become a, a, a collection of short stories that focuses on Malaysian, Indian, male voices. I'm trying, but it's still at a very experimental level, right? And I'm really very interested in giving voice to the genderless. I, I wrote one story about Feminine, a feminine boy who is getting discriminated uh, in school. In school, we've got feminine boys who are discriminated. But what does it mean by what does it mean for an Indian boy getting discriminated in his community for being feminine? It's very different, I feel. So I'm actually I'm actually experimenting and writing along those lines. And that story got actually published in Singapore by an anthology called Unseed. Yeah? All right. Wow. Okay. So that means you are going you're going more complex. That means it's not just the other community in terms of race, but now it's the other community with that intersubjective element of sexuality and gender as well. I suppose along the line, you just grow. You grow out of your comfort zone. But I will still be addressing social, economy, and political identities of the Indian males through these voices. Definitely. Um, definitely. Uh, I will be doing that. Um, um, I, I, I just submitted a story called The Tree Peddler about this uncle. Who, who actually worked and retired and he was driven out from the estates. And of course, uh, the years of industry has helped him to educate his children and he buys a big dream house and he moves on into this huge housing estate that doesn't have trees. And he gets this idea about planting trees, adding green to his environment. And he starts planting neem trees and he starts 
towing them around the neighborhood, asking people, encouraging people to plant more trees. And uh, it, has a, it has a little twist. It, it, it also talks about his identity from his estates. It talks about displacement. The theme is displacement. And the theme of nostalgia comes in, of him trying to, recon to, to recreate this entire estate. But it, 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 and when he goes around his housing area, pleading with the people, offering saplings of these trees, talking to them about greening the earth, talking to them about the benefits of planting this particular tree for, it, for its medicinal properties, environmental properties and things like that. And he gets scorned and he gets uh, very discriminative comments. And I've got like three different races in Malaysia giving three different uh, commentaries um, to him. So we talk about idiosyncrasies and we also talk about the masculine man in his situation of deprivation. All right. So 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 I'm actually packing and repacking. I suppose as you grow as a writer and as you age, the stories are built on so many levels and probably the adage of complexity comes in. I don't know. Probably this is why that word comes in. Paul, we've come to the end of this session. Just want to say thank you so much for the Elifer Trophy and other stories. I mean, it really, it really, on a personal level, it really brought me back to what I have always been passionate about, but to find somebody who was able to put it beautifully into stories just got me so excited. And I've gained a new friend. Thank you for being my new friend. <laughs> and Pleasure. you were so kind, yes, you know, to all the listeners out there, Paul really uh, enabled me to reach out with, without, you know, uh, trying to be exclusive and say, oh, no, you've got to fill this form first and you've got to get me through that uh, platform and things like that. But he just um, allowed me to reach out straight away. And Paul, I just want to say thank you for that. And we really appreciate, yeah, that really the way that you speak for the Indian community and write for them, that's been such a meaningful thing for us. So thank you so much. So probably I want to thank Benjamin from the Institute of Asian Studies for giving us this platform and definitely for giving me this platform. And I want to thank you, Sally, for finding me and uh, actually giving me a voice giving the voice to my work. I think these are, this definitely came by the in intuitions of the heavens, I think. Our stars just aligned together, you know, being Indians. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, I really want to thank my editors at Penguin Southeast Asia, especially Nora. Uh, she's a chief editor. And definitely for to the Chinese who was the content editor of this book, yeah? Without them, this book wouldn't have been a reality as well. So I'm glad. I'm just happy for this interview, and I'm just glad to be here. And I'm just glad um, to be given this opportunity. Thank you so much. That was Sally Ann Parham speaking with the author, Paul Gyanaselvam. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. 
This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit ias.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time.